Welcome to episode 269 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Fallon, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our topic this week, we're going to chat a little bit about digital capitalism and creating a digital future inspired by the essay written by Douglas Rushkoff on Medium entitled Survival of the Richest. So first, let me say that you should definitely check out this Medium article by Douglas Rushkoff. He's writing a book right now, I believe, called Team Human. And he has some interesting insights and a fascinating story about how he was consulting with some wealthy individuals about emerging technologies and sort of the sequence of what these individuals thought the technology would be used for sort of ended up with a uh, an apocalyptic outcome, right? So the question was, hey, how are emerging technologies going to uh, shape our future? And then the assumption underlying those questions was that the future is going to be grim as there's going to be plenty of have-nots and only a few haves and, and how do the haves protect that future? Dirk, you pointed out this article to me. And so before we dive into sort of digital capitalism, which is our topic for today, uh, your impressions on uh, uh, Mr. Rushkoff's uh, um, essay there. I thought it was very interesting. You know, it brought a mainstream light, something that's been more in the shadows. And I don't think people are even aware of, uh, you know, much less thinking about. But it's something that's been on my mind for a long time. You know, John, I designed a game five years ago called Tomorrow which was about, you know, sort of post-apocalyptic population management and management by virtue of destroying people by uh, depopulating the planet. And that came out of my own thought experiments around what must the people in power, what must the wealthy be planning and thinking about and getting ready to do if the worst, you know, most apocalyptic uh, predictions for what is going to happen due to global warming, due to other things going on at a macro level would occur. So this is something I've always found fascinating and have thought a lot about. And so I was very pleased to read this article where, you know, Doug is sort of pulling back the curtain on A, these things exist, and B, this is what they look like. So that was neat. And, you know, the sort of setup is it was just a small handful of the richest bankers in the world. So, you know, pure money men driven by capitalism and wealth accumulation. And um, the, the process went from there asking more general questions to eventually getting to the real questions that they cared about, which is how are we going to be safe when everything goes to hell? And some of the questions they asked him are questions I've asked myself before. So, you know, what are going to be the best places to be if global warming gets really bad? I've Googled that for years, and there's not good information on the internet about it. Because every year or so, I'm like, oh, let's check now. Let's check now. And it's not great. You know, it's not, they, they aren't yet clearly saying, get the hell out of Miami and New Orleans and these eight other places, and the best places are A, B, C, and D. So I thought it was interesting to see, you know, these sort of wealthy guys asking similar questions. And Doug wasn't um, forthcoming about if he has insight into that or what his suggestions would be, you know, for, I, you know, in my own sort of thinking about what is probably safe, you know, I, I think about places that right now are cold and places that have a lot of fresh water. And so, 
unfortunately, I'm just not wealthy enough. But if I had some more wealth, I would be buying land in, um, you know, Alberta, Canada, maybe even the Northwest Territory if I'm feeling really bearish about, about the future, just to be there, right? Just so if some of this apocalyptic stuff is true, my descendants, my heirs have somewhere to go, have somewhere to to be in, in those situations. Um, so I myself have thought about a lot of the things that these super wealthy are thinking about. And, and so it's very interesting to read. And of course, it was um, also a little funny, but also a little chilling to read some of their other considerations. So they were very interested in how to keep control of their security force in the event that all these things happen. So the scenario is these guys have already built extensive underground bunkers, which is probably a surprise to some of you as well. And, you know, those bunkers are going to be manned by a security team, by killers, basically, who will make sure that anybody who tries to get in can't get in at the likely cost of their life. Uh, And so they're, you know, plugging Doug about um, how do we keep them loyal? How do we stay in charge in this world where everything's crazy? And, you know, maybe the money that gave us the power to build the bunker in the first place, you know, doesn't have a lot of leverage anymore. So it's a fascinating look into... You know, it's it's an underbelly of emerging tech, but it's also it's also frankly just how the very rich and powerful think. You know, they're um, I think understandably trying to think about how can I use all of this leverage that I have to make myself safe in a bad circumstance, to make the people I love safe in a bad circumstance. And so, as the have-nots that you and I are, um, I feel a little bit bad about it. It's it's perfectly understandable, and frankly, you know, responsibly speaking, what they should do now. Are the apocalyptic scenarios where you need underground bunkers and machine guns and guards manning it, you know, is that likely to happen? No, no, it's not. But, um, you know, if you have more money than God, you know, why not make sure that you're going to be safe in that, in that situation? I don't know. I, I, I thought it was very interesting, and it tied into something I've thought about for a long time now. Yeah, so um, my second book was actually more or less on this topic called Suburbageddon, which was written right around when the Y2K virus was the most popular apocalypse around. Yeah. So I actually have done a bit of research about, uh, you know, doomsday prepping. And uh, yeah, that's uh, an interesting uh, cross between uh, sort of uh, what you would think uh, pioneering slash living in wilderness uh, sort of uh, combined with a degree of paranoia that I can no longer sort of subscribe to in my uh, current state right now. I just, I just find a lot of it more entertaining than not. I suppose that if you're willing to consider the, we'll call it the walking dead scenario and, you know, sort of looking at the world today, I, I think there are a lot of gradations between where we are now and, you know, the walking dead scenario. But let's turn right now, because this is sort of the preface, right, to discussing some of the uh, the reasons that we have this scenario in the first place, which is that digital technologies and emerging technologies in general have the ability to give massive leverage to the people who can um, create an advantage out of it. So you're not only just creating an advantage, but you're creating uh, a multifold advantage by using digital technology. So I think what I liked most about Doug's essay 
was that he was highlighting how we are making all the same mistakes that we made with industrial capitalism, right? Which was sort of the the first golden age came about as a result of industrialists, right? And so we know all the famous family names of the industrialists, whether, you know, uh, they're now on colleges and libraries and research institutions and and sort of that sort of thing. But there isn't a lot of discussion about how we are at this weird point where I, I think we're starting to see people sour on the idea of digital capitalism as having free reign, like it's separating from the digital utopia that we thought it would be or that it could be, and has now just become sort of crappy capitalism. Uh, in digital form. Capitalism is crappy, John. All capitalism is crappy. Well, uh, let's say that that I'm willing to, I think a balanced, well-regulated capitalist um, economy that has the right checks and balances in it is better than some other systems, right? But I think that we have let it get away from us already, right? Not that we're letting it get away from us, which is where, you know, where my thought process has been over the past decade or two, you know, like, hey, you know, we better do something about this soon. I think it's already gotten there, right? And so a perfect example of this is how all of our mobile devices are really just turning things into a giant toxic waste dump due to the fact that we have all kinds of rare earth metals that are sort of you know, part of this technology and integral to it, right? Combined with a supply chain that is just unethical at best, right? So you have a supply chain that stretches across oceans and essentially makes it easy to hide how badly the people are being treated at the other end of that chain. So I thought it was notable because like it or not, there are a number of points that are coming to a head now when it comes to digital capitalism, whether it's the trials and tribulations of Facebook, of of Uber, like where these unsavory and just despicable practices are just suddenly becoming part of the vocabulary uh, when discussing these companies when a few years back, you know, Uber was a tech darling, right? And and so so was Facebook. But now they've been tainted in such a way and because of the sort of cutthroat, no holds barred capitalism against substantial digital leverage. So I think there is a question, and I don't think that there's going to be a decent amount of pushback on the regulation side. It's just not, you know, the environment for that. And you don't have an active sort of unionization or a counterbalance, right? Like you you had with factory workers. So there's a problem here. I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, Doug told that anecdote about the, you know, the uh, apocalyptic scenario to illustrate uh, sort of the excesses and the state of where we are now that these technologies have made uh, their first set of billionaires and very fallible billionaires. And then add to that the emerging technologies that are just coming to the fore right now, uh, such as genomics, uh, you know, and you begin to see that we could be in for a pretty wild ride if we're not careful. Uh, Derek, I'm sure I'm, I ranted and ranted. Yeah, covered a, a lot of ground. Yeah, I covered plenty of ground. So pick pick a spot. Okay. I mean, Uber is a really good example of, of the moment that we're in. And, and 
You know, Uber is a problem on, on two levels. I mean, one is the level that's specific to Uber where, you know, this is the wrong moment in time to be a sexist asshole. Back in the old days, you talked about with Vanderbilt, Carnegie, uh, Rockefeller, being a sexist asshole was quite fine. You know, stepping on people was quite fine. That was the moment in time that they functioned in. Now being a sexist asshole is is going to get you in a whole lot of trouble. And so Uber as a company has really suffered because of that, because of the convergence of sort of social justice with you know, technology and applications today. The second and bigger problem is, let's jump from Uber to Lyft. Lyft is the sort of the happy cousin of Uber, same, same industry, but it's a woman-run company. It doesn't have all of these, um, you know, these naughty stories, one after the other, about, you know, all this HR crap. However, Lyft and Uber and other companies, you know, competing there are engaged in a business practice that is essentially exploiting its workers. Uh, you know, the, the low pay of, of the drivers, and they're not, not realizing and being able to put the pieces together that it's not a good deal, that the money that they're getting in the short term and the immediate for taking that ride as they spend gas, as they wear out their car, as they um, are... are doing those other things, which, by the way, also have environmental impacts that we won't even unpack right now. You know, it it is yet another predatory business model where uh, technology is being used to create efficiency and savings and convenience for the wealthy. And by wealthy, I'm I'm not talking about the super rich like before, but people like you and me, John, at the expense of the people providing the service, the, the drivers. And I use Lyft a lot. I don't use Uber anymore. But I use Lyft quite a bit. I was just at a conference last week. Um, I, I must have taken um, eight Lyft rides, let's say, ish. And, uh, you know, all of those drivers were, were lower class, lower middle class, you know, trying to hustle, trying to make things go and work in their lives. But, you know, they, they already were behind. Um, I don't know. It, I, I, I now feel guilty when I'm taking those rides. It's a weird, you know, it's the... Uh, you know the the sort of the liberal liberal guild is not fun to live with, and and I you know I, I feel it a lot. And being in these lift rides, I definitely was feeling it. I, I feel as though these drivers are unwittingly making their lives worse, and in the profit, I'm benefiting. And it's it's a strange um, and disorienting feeling. Uh, capitalism, I believe capitalism writ large sucks. Capitalism with a lot of oversight can have a role in a bigger system that has some baseline to take care of the citizens. But to me, these are all natural fallouts of, of technology meeting capitalism. Yeah, I think that um, the Wild West period um, has gone on you know, far too long. And the uh, period where regulation would be helpful is drawing to a close. There's also just a huge gap between what's possible given digital technology and what regulators are capable of um, of regulating in, in in a reasonable amount of time. Combine that with the idea of that overregulating has equal you know um, detriments because then you hide these risks that are at least right now we can see sort of all the detrimental 
downsides to, to any of these services. If you overregulate, of course, then you then you disguise these risks as something else, and and you know they're hidden away, and uh, uh, you, you can have other problems that way. So I don't think there's a a really easy answer, which would which would be lovely uh, to to you know to consider. But I am heartened by the fact that at, at least these discussions around you know, hey, what is it that we want out of our technology and our systems combined with our humanity and, and ethics and, and governance? Like, like, how do these things intersect? And what are those experiments that we can conduct that would have the best possible outcomes for people? Um, I, I think those are um, conversations worth having. And I think they were, you know, had a bit at the beginning of, the, you know, the internet boom, but I feel like there's another wave of that coming in light of sort of the problems of digital capitalism. Yeah, when, when the internet first crested, there was a lot of utopianism and optimism about the internet and, you know, humanity. And it just hasn't worked out that way. We shouldn't be terribly surprised. But to your point, you know, this might be a good moment to, to reassess, uh, particularly, you know, with, with deep learning and AI and, and some of the possible ways that that can go. Um, along with the fact that, frankly, now, I, again, look, I mean, I've been almost 30 years now, I've been speaking against capitalism. Now, finally, anti-capitalist stuff is mainstream. It's not the majority, but you hear it talked about a lot. Now that people are turning on capitalism, it also makes it a really good moment. So maybe maybe something really positive can can happen now. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D-Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 269 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.